Before we look at the pattern of destruction which has washed across Syria, I just want to look briefly at the whole picture of the tragedy of, of that country. At the figures for death, destruction, at the indicators of the uprooting of the very fabric of a society during five years of war. The, the scale of the tragedy of Syria, of course, is enormous. A vacuum such as the, the vacuum which has emerged in that country makes major problems for the whole neighbourhood and there's every sign that the indicators are going to get worse unless all the outsiders backing resistance groups or the Syrian government itself work towards a transitional plan more imaginative than total victory for one side. We face some tough questions today. Let's not assume there are easy answers. We cannot quarantine the issue of Syria's monuments or offer solutions that address only a small fraction of the country's problems. Many people ask why fret over a few classical monuments when whole suburbs, towns, villages are being flattened by a relentless onslaught, particularly from the regime's barrel bombs, and when whole generations of Syrians are being condemned to persistent misery. But let's see the ruins today as symbols for the loss of a whole society, and accept that their preservation cannot be assured unless effective governance can be restored. Four years ago, sending the country out into an imagined Arab Spring was all very well, but to leave it prey to all the murderous forces out there was a very bad idea. Today I just want to take two cases, Aleppo and Palmyra. They're symptoms of different aspects and different phases of the conflict. I start with Aleppo because it's very much a subject close to my heart at the moment as I'm a month or so away from finishing a history of Aleppo for Routledge. The threat to the monuments in Aleppo has been inherent for over four years of savage urban warfare. Aleppo's population is over 4 million, according to the 2001, sorry, 2005 census. Today, it's possibly less than 1 million. The economic role of the city has been extremely important in recent decades, and it's not surprising that the, the good people of Aleppo for some time kept themselves rather distant from the conflict until mid-2012. I just want to look quickly at the structure of the city so we understand a bit more about how the damage has been inflicted. The city clings to an axis... Um, oh, it is working. Okay, clings to an axis which you can see on my map here stretches between the citadel there on the right and passes the Great Mosque here in the middle of the axis, that being the, the Great Mosque there. Uh, over to the western gate of the city, the Antioch gate. So this axis has been very important in the whole development of the, of the city. Some more basic facts. People may be surprised to learn that it actually has more monuments than Damascus, by several hundred. Uh, also, we should bear in mind that um, there is no other city in Syria which has suffered damage comparable to the spread of damage which has been inflicted on Aleppo. Even Homs, of course, which was a smaller city and was comprehensively shelled for many months, um, has comparable spread of damage, but the level of the damage is not as intense as it is in, uh, in Aleppo. 
So let's look at the topography of the conflict because I think it's important to understand why the city has been, been so affected. I, I focus here, we'll be focusing on this central area here. The red box is the, the monumental walled city area, but there are a lot of monuments which go beyond the walls, particularly from the, uh, from the Arab periods. The, the area there outlined in, in blue is held by the regime. This is always a little bit approximate, of course, but you can see that it's very much determined by certain features of, uh, of the military uh, infrastructure. And, of course, by this tongue which is coming out right into the, the old city, which is where the citadel is, is located. Um, lovers of history, of course, love to hear that citadels are still in use as citadels, and that's exactly what's, what's happened in, uh, in Aleppo. So, for, for the rest of the uh, examination of Aleppo, we'll zero in on this walled city, um, the regime finger of control is there in that blue shading. Um, down, this downtown area here has been particularly badly affected and this area has provided a pattern of shelter for the rebel forces uh, combating the, the, uh, the, the regime forces in the citadel here. So this has been very much the front line between the two sides. The black dots represent the zone of most intense uh, destruction. As you can see, it's largely following the... This seems to have lost its battery. Um, largely following the, uh, the, the line of confrontation between the two sides. This again is looking at that area in close-up, removing some of those distracting uh, colouring um, layers. Um, you can see a bit more clearly. Oh, it's back. You can see a bit more clearly the uh, the main the major historic monuments are outlined in dark in in black. This is the citadel, and this is that axis I was speaking about before runs along uh, there at the, on the centre on the left. So I want to look now more closely uh, still at the area of the, the red box, which takes us right into that line of confrontation between the citadel and the downtown mosques uh, where the rebels have been hanging out. Now this, pic this uh, Google Earth image was taken in beginning of 2014. The level of destruction at that point was fairly much confined to the souks area here, um, between the citadel and the and the great mosque, the 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 great loss of the was the minaret of the great mosque, which I'll go into a bit in a minute. Um, but the rest of these buildings immediately under the citadel were still intact at that point. Two years later, and this is a rather clearer image from the uh, a, the people at uh, America School of Oriental Research. This whole area south of the citadel here. Uh, has largely been reduced to rubble. And that's what I want to go into now for a few minutes. Basically, the line of confrontation is between the rebels down here and the, the regime, which had still managed through that finger of access to, to, get, to get into the citadel on, on a fairly regular basis. Now, the red labels show us this major destruction which has taken place in the last two years. 
There have been several seven tunnel bombs in this in this area. They're marked there with the uh, with the labels in the red boxes. Um, we'll go into we'll have a look at some of them in in a minute. But you can there are some which partly survive, and the red box in that case has been shaded in half shading. Um, the other feature to note in this area is the very heavy shell damage to some of the minarets and to areas of the souk and the great mosque and they're marked those areas of particularly heavy damage are marked by the uh, the red flashes in the in the on the white boxes so there have been several tunnel bombs which are being claimed by an organization called islamic front um, this was a creation of saudi interests and very was the first to introduce a wahhabi agenda and to this new phase of urban warfare in, uh, in Aleppo. Uh, you can see here from the ground the, the area of confrontation between the citadel up there and the area of these mosques down below where the picture is taken from. I just want to go back to that map with all the distracting layers and to look again at that area of severe destruction which is uh, marked by the dotted uh, pattern. This area is about three hectares, and it really is ground zero uh, these days. So this is looking at that same area before 2011 from the Citadel, showing you uh, the line of confrontation uh, before the damage uh, came about. And these markers here show you the buildings that have now vanished virtually entirely uh, from this, this area. So this is the casualty toll in just that one area alone. Um, the worst damage, as I said, is from the tunnel bombs. Um, probably uh, seven or maybe even eight of them have been set off. Uh, the second extensive damage has been from shelling, which has come from both sides, usually mortar on the uh, rebel side, I think, and the regime is using heavier artillery. Um, but the worst area of selective targeting is the Great Mosque Minaret, which was probably felled by fire from a regime uh, tank. Now, the other important thing about this axis under the citadel is that this was the ancient axis, as, as I mentioned, between the river on the west and the citadel on the, on the uh, east. And it remained the axis right through uh, the Greek, Roman, uh, Byzantine and later periods. And under the Ottomans was redeveloped further to become a showpiece of Ottoman architecture in the uh, in the 16th century. So it's this monumental corridor which has particularly been, been particularly badly uh, battered. I show you this uh, picture from 1941 but uh, it's a uh, it gives you a better image of how this whole corridor operated as a visual axis even in Ottoman times. Now this is one of the first mosques to go. Um, it immediately faces the Citadel Gateway um, in the map up, in the map up there, the pink area. Sorry, in the plan up there, the pink area shows the area of total destruction. You can see that the gatehouse at the top is still surviving, um, but virtually the whole of this mosque is gone. Um, it's very hard to see, except of course for tactical reasons. It's very hard to see why this was made a particular target. Um, but it was pretty close to the entrance to the, to the citadel 
Um, but I wonder whether the Islamists who arranged to blow it up realized that it was the burial place of a son of Saladin, who was one of the great heroes, of course, of the, of the Crusades. I think this might need a new battery. So, The second building in this area which was badly affected was this first Ottoman project from 1530s. And it's actually a very early work by the great Ottoman architecture, architect Sinan. Um, he brought to, to Aleppo a style which was new to Syria. Um, and it, it marked the beginning of the whole is Ottoman presence in the, in the city. Another building, which is much more recent, this was the headquarters of the French governor, built in the 1930s, um, but that has almost entirely gone in another series of tunnel bombs. I think, though, that the worst loss in Aleppo is the, is the minaret of the Great Mosque. It's, of course, uh, it, was as it stood isolated outside the entrance to the mosque, and... Um, it has been, fortunately, recorded in some detail, particularly by uh, Herzfeld in the early part of the last century. But um, it was probably offering a very nice position for, art for snipers um, to hang out and to direct fire against the, the citadel. But it's a rare example of Seljuk work. In fact, it's the only building from that period which survives in Syria. And it has very interesting departures from the style of Seljuk architecture seen in other parts of the Middle East. So it's just a glimpse of some of the worst aspects of the damage in, in Aleppo. But I want to concentrate now on the new phase of destruction which has overtaken, in Syria, overtaken Syria. And that's one which is much more ideologically, even more ideologically motivated and whose purpose is almost totally incidental or irrelevant indeed to the conflict itself. Now all of you I'm sure were aware of the uh, tragic beheading of uh, Khaled al-Assad who had for many years been Director of Antiquities in Palmyra. I think the, uh, there are a lot of speculation about the reason why al-Assad didn't get away um, and uh, you know, why he, he fell into rebel hands, in, into the ISIS's hands, particularly after he'd been picked up once and then released. But I think there must be a, an element of idealism in the whole thing because his whole career was one in which he sought to represent Palmyra as not just a classical uh, monument which is of interest to, uh, you know, to people who specialised in the, in the classical period. He wanted to show it was a living city which had survived across many centuries and which had phases after the, the end of, the, uh, the end of uh, Zenobia's rebellion in, in 270. Uh, he, he was born in the Oasis in 1934 and he studied at Damascus University. In other words, he was a person who had done most of the, got most of his background from Syria itself. Um, so he's, what the symbolism I think of his, his beheading is very much that of the need to get rid of a person who had shown the traditions of Palmyra which sent exactly the wrong message to, to ISIS's followers. In other words, it showed that 
Islam did not bring an end to other civilizations that went before it. Uh, Islam built on those civilizations to some extent. Um, but ISIS had a different message. They wanted to bring in a new year zero in the, po in the Pol Pot uh, fashion uh, from the Cambodian experience. But so I think that is to some extent why he was, and, and perhaps because he refused to give any information on the program, which had uh, safeguarded a lot of the treasures from uh, Palmyra by taking them to other places of refuge. I think that explains why he had to go in terms of ISIS's agenda. So I think that's very much symbolic of this new phase that ISIS's arrival in Palmyra has introduced. They came in, of course, in May this year, uh, and they began by executing 400 or so survivors of the regime forces um, in, in staged mass executions, of course, in the Roman theatre, where else? Uh, with a teenage firing squad. So their, uh, their efforts to shock with maximum effect were very much evident right from the start. The next month in June, an, uh, the, phase, the first real phase of the destruction of the monuments began. There was a looting operation in a tomb called the Tomb of Tibble, uh, which had been discovered in, in recent uh, decades. Um, then shortly after, or about, about the same time, they blew up the reconstructed lion figure uh, of, uh, which had stood at the gate to the Temple of Alat and had been reconstructed to stand outside the, uh, the modern museum. Another interesting priority, of course, and this is one which does continue the tradition of a lot of the other Islamist forces in Syria, was to blow up uh, tombs of, of uh, Islamic holy, holy men who were commemorated either in the oasis or outside the oasis. And this was very much a preoccupation which was already evident on the Islamist side. Phase two, though, was more spectacular and obviously designed for maximum visual impact. Early in August, the Temple of Baal Shamin, the, the, the rather small but very charming temple which stood uh, not far from the, um, the Zenobia Hotel in, in Palmyra, uh, was destroyed by explosives planted in it to, to maximum effect. The blast also affected some of the colonnades, but most of the surrounding courtyards appear to still be, to be still standing. Of course, they then moved on to the Temple of Bell. The whole, temp the whole, temp the whole keller of the temple was destroyed by a blast in, on the 30th of August. This was the centerpiece of Palmyra and is one of the largest and most intact Roman period temples in the, in the East. The keller, but not the surrounding enclosure again, was destroyed by carefully set detonations. And now, as you can see in the lower right-hand photo there, uh, is just now simply pulverized rubble, except for one remarkable survival, and that is the great western doorway to the temple. And its survival can be explained by the fact that it was reconstructed under the French in 1932 and the stabilisation of the structure with the help of uh, some reinforced concrete has obviously done much to preserve uh, the, uh, the frame. One other thing to note is that this was the interior of the shrine before the explosion. Um, 
One notable feature of the shrine was the, the two adatons, um, at one at either end, and the one here at the southern shrine had an enormously uh, detailed and beautifully carved ceiling, which was much admired, particularly by 18th century visitors to, uh, to Palmyra. And I've put up there on this slide uh, Ian Browning's description in his book on Palmyra, where he particularly highlights the significance of the, of the uh, the stone to the neoclassical architectural uh, uh, devotees of the of the 18th century. So the loss of this stone in itself is a huge blow. I doubt whether it'd be possible now to to re to re to carve in the same skillful way a single block faultlessly and with such extraordinary precision. By the way, you can see a pale imitation of it at. Uh, at uh, Osterley Park, just outside Heathrow Airport, in outside London. But this is a, a, a rather enlarged version done in plaster and elongated to fit the, uh, the dining room. Then ISIS moved on to phase four. This was possibly from late August to early September. They selected seven tower tombs in the Valley of the Tombs. Um, I won't go into it here, but the, the details of all these tombs were, on, were put onto a, uh, a special page on my website um, just at the beginning of September to uh, indicate to people exactly which tombs had been, had been destroyed. But you can see from this, my map of the Valley of the Tombs area in Palmyra, um, there are quite a lot of tombs there. They're in various stages of... of uh, survival, but um, the ones which, uh, which were chosen by ISIS were very carefully chosen as the most spectacular, the most interesting, the highest, the best preserved, and the ones with the, the most extraordinarily in intricate decoration. So they know what they're doing, even if their intentions are completely crazy in our, in our terms. So this is the first of the cluster. I'll just go quickly through these tombs. Um, this is the first cluster you meet as you go into the valley. And they've survived, as you can see there, the two highest uh, examples uh, at, the, at, the, at either end. Um, this is tomb number 71, which was on the left. Um, you can see there the decoration is fairly simple, but uh, um, it, was, uh, it was in quite good uh, state of preservation. Um, moving further now towards the, towards the uh, west, you reach the next major tomb in that cluster, uh, the tomb of Iamblichus, as it's often called, which has been much um, illustrated over the years, including by the French artist uh, Cassas. The Cassas's drawing gives you some idea of the internal structure of this, uh, of this kind of tower tomb. This one uh, has, I think, five surviving uh, levels or five evidence of, of uh, five levels but it was also ex extensively decorated inside with a coffered ceiling and colored relief heads that of course is now all gone we move further down the valley quickly this is about halfway down the tomb of kitot again is probably selected because it's fairly high and it has some intricate carving on the uh, surrounding the uh, the relief of the of the deceased which is in that uh, niche two-thirds of the way up the structure 
that just gives you a closer up view of it. By the way, all these, it's interesting that all these, do, all these sites that have been chosen by ISIS for destruction fortuitously um, have been fairly well documented in recent uh, research. And here I pay tribute to Agnes Henning's study, restudy of the uh, tower tombs in Palmyra, which came out a few years ago. So that gives you some idea of the decoration inside, um, which is now all gone. Um, we, sorry, we've, I've jumped something. Yes, I've jumped the tomb of El Habel. This is the best preserved of all the tower tombs, and it's not surprising that ISIS has chosen it for their uh, campaign of destruction. Um, it's the one which has most evidence of the loculi system inside, and uh, again, a, a coffered ceiling with a, quite a range of... Uh, of reliefs. Last phase so far, as, as we know, seems to be the monumental arch. Um, it's, it's of course a more open structure, so therefore difficult to blow up. Um, they seem to have had a go at doing it from the center. And as you can see in this little uh, uh, YouTube or um, um, posted, um, internet posted vision, which is taken by a passerby, obviously in a vehicle, you can see that a lot of the structure has in fact survived, but uh, they managed to have felled quite a, quite a large part of the, the central arch. But before we leave Palmyra, let's not forget the town established there under the French mandate, where most of the modern day citizens of the, of the uh, city live. What sort of life do they have now? Their main employer was either the government or the tourism industry. Those government employees who could fled. Many, as I've mentioned, were killed if they belonged to the military. Others just simply took off into the countryside and then found their way to refuges elsewhere. But their livelihoods are largely gone. The water source for the oasis had largely dried up even before 2011. Living conditions now are reportedly impossible. Hospital facilities have been abandoned. The nearest medical uh, option is now Raqqa, which is a long and very difficult trip to the north. And of course, the regime has now resumed its barrel bombing of uh, areas in the, in the town and around the city. And the, I read the other day that the Russians have also chosen um, Palmyra for their bombing lists. So I just want to end up by giving some overall figures. I, I maintain a database which puts out every, and I put it out every month, a readout on what I think are the cumulative list of uh, monuments damaged in the, in the fighting since 2011. I'll leave outside a sort of a flyer uh, drawing attention to the, uh, the, 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 the list. But um, I just want to bring before, bring to you here some of the conclusions based on my reading of the level of damage, the distribution of damage and how it's been caused, etc. So just a few quick points. I think almost one third of assessed cases, we're not talking of course about the hundreds and thousands of total cases that could be the, the uh, sites or buildings that could be involved in Syria. We're talking about the cases which I think are sufficiently uh, confirmed on the visual record to be worth, uh, worth assessing. 
I think almost one third of the cases involve either total destruction or significant damage, usually from shelling. The rest of them, the, another, 30, another 50 percent, could possibly be repaired using existing resources. And then there's another 20 percent which I think is not sufficiently confirmed to be, to be able to give us a basis for assessment. I just wanted to highlight one thing though on this, scre this screen, and that is the, the number of cases in Aleppo. Um, you can see there of the 36 cases of total destruction, a third of them are in, are in Aleppo. Uh, also, Aleppo has a much higher proportion of cases involving write-offs or requiring major rebuilding. Um, the question of who's doing what to whom, of course, is a very long and complex one. Um, before 2014, it was the, the worst damage was done by government forces seeking to dislodge Islamist uh, rebels from mosques where they'd taken refuge or using the minarets as firing points. There is very little sign of any, of any deliberate elimination of structures for ideological reasons, though many, of course, were affected due to secondary damage or in, inaccurate fire. By 2013, though, with the arrival of larger uh, Islamist groups, including Islamic Front and Jabal al-Nusra, um, the, there was a much more of a pattern of resort to widespread destruction just to clear zones of fire and protection. This is too is the period when looting and smuggling began to be, uh, to be upscaled and it was the, 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 the year in which the tunnel bombing started in Aleppo. Now ISIS has changed the equation again. They moved first against any Isla Islamic building which they associated with Shiism or with an interpretation of Sunni Islam which offended their principles. Once ISIS overran Palmyra, they reached the first major archaeological site which was of World Heritage status, and with great relish they applied their shock and awe tactics to it on a major scale. I should just mention too that the only other site where they, we've had evidence of their deliberate program of destruction is at Karyaten, um, and the, the attempts to destroy the monastery there may be a foretaste of what they would do to other non-Muslim or Christian sites if they got any further west. And of course we have in that respect a, uh, the precedent too of the murder of Father Paolo Dall'Olio who is the, the, the wonderful uh, Jesuit who restored the monastery of Mar, Mar Musa outside uh, Damascus and was taken by ISIS um, in, in Raqqa and murdered a few days later. So uh, there's a very useful, I, I think there's already been a reference to this series of articles in Near Eastern Archaeology, but there's an article which has some very interesting statistics which I think are worth quickly summarising now. Um, the conclusions I would draw from them are that until May this year the damage due to a deliberate destruction was very much um, only a minority of cases. Looting and loss of control have always been the most widespread factors. Instances of sectarian motivation for destruction have been rare until Islamic sites became targets for the Islamists' war on Shiism. 
Aleppo was most at risk uh, in, in the lines of confrontation, though, as it was largely a fixed front line between the two forces. I think, though, now with the rise of ISIS, the situation has become much more dangerous. There is a free market in pillage and the use of monuments for shock value. Monuments are no longer an incidental, but a specific target. And that, of course, has also been a pattern of the pattern of looting has also been something which is encouraged and even supervised by ISIS. I'll finish with just a few thoughts on this panel. I won't go through them all, but um, uh, just I think the main points I think which could be borne in mind for a reconstruction phase, which sadly may still be a long way off. Uh, the presence of the situation is the sum of an increasingly complex conundrum. The Syrian government from the start externalised its problems by claiming a threat that barely existed at the time. Now its external enemies have conjured up a whole range of internal issues that were once almost irrelevant to Syria. So you have a real witch's brew of factors which were, are not necessarily even native to the, to, the city, to, the, to the country but are now playing out in the most extraordinarily complex and uh, murderous fashion. I don't think we should forget too that much of the worst destruction has been the work of groups which are funded by external players who are generally considered to be rather pro-Western in their points of view. And I would just mention the Saudis, the Gulf, other Gulf states, and of course Turkey. I think these countries have contributed to a, a situation which is really uh, an appalling danger to themselves too in the way in which it's being played out. And I think that might be one of the factors which is now influencing people to come to the table in Vienna the other day. So it's impossible then to see the conflict in Syria from any one facet and to say we can set aside that problem and tackle it this way when there are so many assets which are all interlocked and interdependent. Thank you.